Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Good morning. I hope it's a wonderful Easter in your home and that it was a wonderful Easter week preceding this morning. Thank you all of you who joined us in fasting from Wednesday through Thursday. I know many of you did. And I know it was a rich time for many of us when we gathered together to break our fast separately yet united on Monday, Thursday, the day that we would normally be together in this room as a church. This year we were not together in this room, but we were together, weren't we? And I trust that your Monday, Monday, Thursday dinner was as enjoyable as ours was. We had three types of meat, uh, twice baked potatoes. Uh, I can't go through it all, you'll be jealous. <laughs> it was a wonderful evening, but I've heard from many others that it was a great evening. I was told this morning by one friend that it was the best date he's had with his wife ever. And so I hope it was a great time for you. Thank you for the prayer. And as we turn to God's word this morning, I want to again, like last week, ask you to have one of your children pray. Maybe choose that child now, because when I got home afterwards last week, I was told, you didn't give us enough time. Well, I went through the prayer in my head that I'd have prayed here, and I was done. I don't know why you weren't done. <laughs> but um, so choose someone to pray in your group, and, uh, and then we will pray in uh, allowed in your homes, hear silently that God will bless us as we turn to his word. Our scripture passage this morning is Acts 17, 16 through 32. This is a story of, of Paul in Athens uh, in, the, in, in, in the marketplace initially and then going up the hill there. And if you've been there, you know it's not a very long walk going up the hill to the Areopagus, Mars Hill being the name of the hill, the Areopagus being the place at the top of the hill where the philosophers would gather to debate. This is the word of the Lord. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens for his friends to return, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be present. Now, just let me say, it is, it is a good and godly thing to be provoked by evil and not to get angry, not to go on a rampage and tearing about in Athens or in New York or Rome, maybe in the temple in Jerusalem as Jesus did there, it's appropriate to tear it apart. But um, in these cities, what Paul does is to speak and argue his his irritation, his provocation, the provocation that struck him by all the idols caused him to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles in, in the synagogues and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. So it wasn't just in the religious place, it was in the marketplace. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? And they're making fun of him, aren't they? And that will happen to you as well. Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities. 
because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times, the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God. Perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead some began to sneer but others said we shall hear you again concerning this. The word of the Lord. And now, let's pray that God will be with us as we read and look at his word together. Amen. If you read the New Testament and pay attention, one of the unmistakable truths that you will, you will arrive at, that you will come to understand, is that in the mind and the view of Paul, but not just Paul, everyone who writes, everyone who speaks in the New Testament, the most significant fact of that era, but not just of that era of all time, and for all Christians, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection is constantly on Paul's lips. The resurrection is the first thing he hits on when he's witnessing. The resurrection is the theme of his song. No matter where he goes, no matter to whom he speaks, Paul speaks about the resurrection the resurrection comes up. Now here, Paul is speaking to a group of Athenians who have called him an idle babbler, and he is, in a sense, returning the favor when he says to them that they are ignorant, which he says perhaps in slightly more elevated terms than their disparagement of him, and yet he does call them ignorant, 
And he tells them that the God that they have worshipped in ignorance, he is now declaring to them. And in verse 30, not just verse 23 where he says, the God you worshipped in ignorance, I declare to you. In verse 30 he says that God having overlooked the times of ignorance, ignorance again, is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he's appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And the people hear this about the resurrection and they say, whoa, this is a strange teaching. Some of them laugh and scorn and mock. Others say, we want to hear more about this. Athens is the most learned city in the world. At that time, still famous today for its philosophers and its learning, but according to Paul, a place of ignorance because they do not know God nor do they worship him. And the proof of their ignorance and their need to change is furnished by God through the great work he did and the miracle that was accomplished on this day, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This raising of Jesus from the dead, Paul says to the Athenians, furnishes proof to all men that they should repent. Everyone should look at Jesus and the resurrection and repent. This is evident, this, this theme in all of Paul's ministry. The resurrection of Christ is not proof only for those who witnessed it, it's proof to all men, which seems a strange claim. You would think it would be proof only to those who saw it, but no, Paul says it's proof to all men. It's proof for Paul, whose apostolic ministry began with a vision of the risen Jesus. It's proof to Mary, the first to see him. It's proof to Cephas, the, the first of the twelve to see Jesus, Peter. Then to the twelve. Then to the 500, he appeared to at one time. Paul refers to all these groups in 1 Corinthians 15. Of course, those make perfect sense. They all saw Jesus resurrected. But it's also proof for the philosophers of Athens. Paul preaches in Jerusalem. And it's proof for them. It's proof for the Sanhedrin. Paul declares before the Sanhedrin when, he's, when he is there placed on trial for having, as they said, desecrated the temple in his final trip to Jerusalem. He's there, he's before the Sanhedrin, and he declares to them, I am on trial for my belief in the resurrection. It's not a cynical statement. It divides the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees, who at that time believed in the resurrection, said, well, that's our man. The, the Sadducees and the others said, oh, man, and it divided them. But it wasn't a cynical move. Paul truly believed and sincerely stated that he was on trial for his belief in the resurrection. We know this because when he is taken to trial before the Roman governor, before Felix, where he is taken from the Sanhedrin, and after the Sanhedrin erupts in chaos, because he's a Roman citizen, he can go to the Roman authorities. Paul says to Felix, shortly after the eruption in the Sanhedrin, but this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our prophets, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that's written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men cherish themselves. What is their hope? That there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. This is what he states. He's on trial for his conviction that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Felix leaves Paul in prison for two years Along comes his successor, Festus, inheriting 
the governorship and also the problem of Paul who's still in prison and never actually been tried, never satisfaction given to him or to his accusers. Festus invites Paul's Jewish accusers to come from Jerusalem. Once again, they come trying to have Paul put to death, having failed to get Felix to do it. Festus brings Paul together with his accusers and sensing the desire of the governor of Festus to appease the Jews, Paul exercises his right as a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar, which transfers the venue of the trial from Caesarea, Caesarea Maritimus, where they were, to Caesar's court in Rome. Now, a few days later, the, the king of the area, the Jewish king, Herod Agrippa, and his wife Bernice come to visit Governor Felix in that, in that town of Caesarea by the sea, Felix mentions to them the strange case of Paul and his Jewish accusers, and he explains the situation to Agrippa and Bernice in these words. He says, so after they, that is Paul's accusers from Jerusalem, had assembled here, I did not delay. But on the next day, I took my seat in the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought before me. When the accusers stood up, they began bringing charges against him, not of such crimes as I was expecting, but they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a dead man whom Paul asserted to be alive. And so we know that the, the argument of the resurrection became the argument eh, when the Jewish leaders come two years later. It, it's the same argument that began it all in the, in the temple and it continues in the court of Festus. Now we could go on and on quoting Paul about the resurrection, presenting the resurrection as the ultimate proof of scripture's truth and of man's need to repent. But it's not just Paul. It's all the apostles. Indeed, everyone in the early church, everyone, everyone was transformed by the resurrection. Everyone preached the resurrection. Seeing Jesus resurrected and transformed by the power of God transformed the lives of everyone who witnessed it. And so we see Several specific ways, two specific ways that Paul argues from the resurrection of Jesus. Both of them are in view in Athens in the passage we read. First, Paul argues the reality of a resurrection. Second, he argues for the resurrection of Christ. But first, he argues the reality of a resurrection. Paul argues for a resurrection of the dead, a general resurrection, a general belief in the resurrection. This is related to the resurrection of Christ, but it's distinct from it. Notice in verse 18 of our passage, the people say, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They're separate. I mean, they mingle, but they're separate things. He's preaching Jesus, Jesus' resurrection. He's preaching a resurrection. He's preaching them both, Jesus and the resurrection. In his trial before Felix, Paul argued that he had a hope in God which these men cherish themselves that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So he's preaching a, a general resurrection. Resurrection of all men, including both the righteous and the wicked. And he preaches along with it and following it the resurrection of Christ. But he begins with the resurrection of all men. These are different, related but different arguments. He argues for a resurrection especially to certain people to the Greeks, to the Romans, to the pagans, to the heathen. He begins by saying there is a resurrection. There is a resurrection. Those who are not Jewish. He also argues it with the Jews because not all the Jews believe in it, but he especially argues this to the Greeks, Romans, all the heathen. 
he argues that there is a life to come. It's not a hard argument to make to the Greeks and the Romans, nor is it a hard argument to make today. It remains a fairly easy argument today as then, because most men personally, if not publicly, are convinced that there is some form of cosmic justice, some form of greater being, some form of continuation of the soul, some form of awareness of consciousness that is not ended by death. And so this argument for a resurrection generally is an argument that Paul makes in a variety of ways. It's an argument that he makes by saying, look, life goes on. There is more to life than the body. It's very clear that Paul believes in a soul. And so there is the argument that, is, that Paul makes, that, and it has currency with his, with his audience, that is an argument simply from the fact that we are conscious beings and that our, our consciousness is, in a sense, separate from our physicality, our, our, our organic bodies, our natures. There is a, there is a soul. We are conscious beings. You are a conscious being. Even in your sleep when your body is as dead, you are conscious, you are going places, you are saying things, God is speaking to you at times in your dreams, you are in your dreams doing good things and bad things, you commit sins in your sleep, in your consciousness, in your soul. The body is sleeping, but you're having pleasures, you're experiencing pain, you're frightened, you're happy. The body is dormant, but things are happening that are in a very real sense real. And our dreams are a proof of the reality of a conscious life that exists, that is not explicitly tied to the body. There is a consciousness. There is a soul. This is the, the argument from the soul or from the subconscious. You've had dreams at times. I've had dreams. And I wonder if they're real. I have a few dreams I had when I was a kid that I still am not certain whether they happened or not. Well, many of us have had dreams of flying. And it's a, it's a premonition of of what will be as Jesus rose into the clouds so he'll call us into the clouds I mean it's not a it's not an impossibility in our minds we've already done it it's a beautiful thing this this soul that God has given man it's an argument for the resurrection for something beyond this life there is the argument from the the soul or the subconscious there is an ethical argument as well our sense of justice demands a resurrection, a life following this life. We believe in right and wrong. We believe that there's a scales that weighs human lives and that somehow we are, we are in danger if that scales ends with us on the side of sin. Now, we're, this doesn't mean that we understand everything about how those scales work. We don't understand necessarily that Jesus is the only way to make those scales tip towards heaven and God. But we do understand that there's a reckoning to come, that, there, that there's a judgment. If not in this life, and often it's not in this life, then in the life to come. And most men understand that these scales do not fully accurately 
repay in this life what has happened. Very often the good die without the rewards in this life. The righteous die and often the hands of the unrighteous and the unrighteous go on and on. I don't think there's anyone who thinks that the death in the bunker of Adolf Hitler by his own hand was all that lies in store for that man for the wickedness, for the evil deeds he did. And the victims of such men, victims such as Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who loved God and yet died at the hands of wicked men such as Adolf Hitler, can not only hope that, that Hitler will be repaid for his evil in a life to come, but that their suffering under him will not be the last word either, but for them that are righteous, there will be a reward. We all believe in some sense that there must be a reckoning. This is the ethical argument that Paul makes for the resurrection. There is a just God. There is a God who calls us before him. We must answer to him. This is innate to us. We believe this. It's the nature of fatherhood that we are to answer to our fathers, that we're to be disciplined by our fathers, that we are to respond to them, that they try us and look at us and that they're forging something from us. And this is true of God as a father. It's inherent within us. Paul starts by arguing that God made all things. And from that argument, it flows naturally that God expects these things to honor him. This is an ethical argument. There is also an argument that, <clears throat> that I, I don't find in Paul, but I think it's implicit in all that he says. It's a physical universe argument. It's an argument from the nature of things as we see them around us. It's not from our subconscious. It's not from ethics but it's from the nature of things that we see in this world. The, the first law of thermodynamics is that all energy is conserved, that there is no loss of energy. If we understand the soul to have energy and power, in fact, to have such power that it drives the body and moves the world, then we would be fools to say that the soul suddenly goes and there's nothing. There's no conservation of that energy. There's nothing left. It, it does not make sense. The soul, the mind, our consciousness is powerful. It probes the universe. It shapes the world. It is an energy. You know it and I know it. Some people have greater energy than others, but all of us have an energy. And it's apart from the operations of the body. It rules and governs the operations of the body. And so there's a belief in all men in the continuation of this energy. Whether we call it yin and yang or nirvana or karma or whatever we we say look there's there's something that follows and that is that is eventuated or affected brought about by the soul there are so few cultures peoples and religions that do not believe in the con in the continuation of some form of consciousness that it's it's not even worth talking about those groups reading the first two volumes of a three-volume biography of Joe Stalin. Stalin, theoretically, was an atheist who did not believe in God. Uh, yet he spent his formative years in a seminary. It's a high school for training people for the Orthodox priesthood. Stalin constantly spoke about God. 
constantly talked about the judgment of God. It's all through his life, an atheist. But he really wasn't an atheist. It's there with all people. Those who say they lack it, that they don't believe in it, they've only fought it and fought it and denied it and denied it to the point where it has receded in them into a form of quietude. But it's there. It's there. So with those who understand the truth that there is a a justice to come, that there's a conservation of energy, that the subconscious is real. Paul argues for the actual resurrection of the body. Not just for a continuation of consciousness, a resurrection. Not the consciousness of the soul going into some form of God, not some kind of panentheism where we all go and join the great divine being, not reincarnation, but the body and the soul reunited one day before God in his presence to give an account for the way this life was lived. Paul contends for this reuniting because in the day of Paul, no less than our own, people separated who they thought they were internally from what they did externally. They thought that I am this kind of person inside, but I may act that way, but with my body and my mouth and do things, but really internally, inside, I'm a good person, I'm a good person. They lived believing things about themselves, utterly at odds with the things they actually did, with the deeds that they committed in the flesh. And so by arguing for the resurrection, Paul is arguing against the philosophers, particularly of Athens, who said that the body wasn't real, that these things were just kinds of forms, and the reality was the great reality that existed beyond. And one day we get beyond this this base corruption of the body, it's Platonism. This is, Plato was the philosopher who taught this. We get beyond it, and, we, and we, we become one with the great forms. Paul is saying, no, 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 don't think that the body is nothing. Don't ever think that what you do in the flesh isn't who you are, that somehow you're above what you're doing. Paul is making people accountable for their deeds by arguing a resurrection, forcing us to deal with a real creator, Father, God. Not some vague notion of God, not God as pantheism, as the universe, not God as universal consciousness, God as some heavenly karma where justice takes place, not God as an idea or an ideal. No, there is a real you, there is a real me, it involves our flesh, and there is a real God before whom we will one day stand in the flesh, God and man together one day not living forever in separate spheres, man will meet God in the flesh. You will stand in the body that you can pinch right now this morning. You will stand before God. Now, people can be very open to the idea of some form of consciousness or existence after death. But what we don't want and fly from is the biblical idea of the flesh being made by God the flesh being who we are and the flesh one day standing before God to receive either its reward or its punishment. We want it vague. We want God to be vague. We want man to be vague. We want life going on after death to be vague because in vagueness we have peace. But in particulars we are uncomfortable. 
And the resurrection puts an end to all that nonsense. It is specific. A creator God, a created man or woman, you, me, every one of us one day standing before our creator. The idea of the need to give an account just jumps out when we think about this. It leaps before our eyes when we think of the resurrection. They say, we will meet our creator. We will stand before the one who made us. You, not separate from the you that's here. You as you are. You who did the things you did. Not some conceptual you. The real you. The you in your body. Who hit your wife. Who stole from your employer. Who slept with a man other than your husband. You in that body. All of us resurrected. Paul says there's a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. And God will judge all men at that resurrection. Now, it's in line with the form of belief that all men carry. But it's an overthrow of that form as well. It it's, does violence to the belief of all men because it's a concrete existence with concrete consequences extending this life and its trajectory into eternity. Wherever he went, whomever he taught, Paul the Apostle began with this, the resurrection. You are accountable. One day you will stand before God. In the flesh, you recognizably you, your mother will know you, your father will know you, your wife will know you, your children will know you. They will remember the things you did in the flesh. They will know what you did. And you will stand there together with them. This is the astounding thing. The transformative thing that Paul is preaching to everyone. The body will rise. It will stand in the presence of its maker in the flesh seeing God. Now this leads to the second thing that Paul preaches that we can know the resurrection is true and have knowledge about it and proof of it in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the proof of the resurrection. Paul says, look, Jesus was seen after his resurrection by Peter, by the apostles, by 500. It's a verifiable fact. Many of us saw him. People, you know, Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, you know, 500 people saw him, but Corinth is 900 miles from Jerusalem. And when Paul writes to the Corinthians saying there were 500 people who saw him, some of whom have fallen asleep, but many are still alive, he's not only crossing 900 miles, but he's crossing decades of time. It was unlikely that anyone in Corinth was going to ever meet someone who was actually a witness to the resurrection. It was as unlikely that they would meet a witness of the resurrection as it is that you and I will. A physical witness to the physical Christ we aren't going to meet that person and the people of Corinth weren't. But Paul argues, saying, there were many, many people who saw him. And those many, many people who saw him exploded like an atom bomb. <laughs> they came out of the gates of that experience of the risen Christ and they were transformed. Peter, a few days before, in fear of death, had denied Christ three times. But when he saw the risen Jesus, he never denied him again. The disciples went from discouragement and defeat to power when Jesus appeared to them. This was not like Jesus raising Lazarus. This was not like Jesus raising the widow of Nain's son or Jairus' daughter. This was Jesus 
coming back, not summoned by a miracle worker, but coming back never to die again, raised by the power of God. That resurrection transformed everyone who saw it. Jesus came back. He rose. His resurrection was proof of all the rest. Everything he taught, everything he preached, all the claims he had made, all the prophecies about him in Scripture. And so Paul says to the Athenians, God is now declaring to men that people everywhere should repent because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. All men are served with proof from God that there is coming a day of judgment by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the proof, and there is an imperative that flows from it, which is we should repent. In Jesus, we have the sacrifice for our sins. In Christ, we have God's answer for our need at the court of judgment. In the death of Christ, God's wrath was satisfied. You believe in a resurrection. You believe in a karmic justice. You believe in these things. Will you not repent and turn to Jesus? Will you not turn to the only one who has gone there and come back? In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean. He went to the the East Indies, but he sailed west. He was uh, not the first person to do it, but he was the first person to come back, having done it. Others had tried, they'd never come back, and no one followed someone who hadn't come back. Columbus came back. We trust those who come back and tell us there's a way. Praise God that on Easter, Jesus came back, and he tells us the way to the presence and the pleasure of his Father. He is the path. Will you repent and trust him?